Well, we come now to that word that we've been asking God to teach us to trust. And we're looking this morning at uh, what's called the Gospel of Mark. You'll find it on page 842 in the church Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry, I'm going to read it out to you. Those of you who are not familiar with College Church, perhaps visiting for Explore God series, we take God's Word um, very seriously as a church. And one of the ways we do that is actually often before we we hear God's Word taught to us, we remain standing. And it's a way of saying that, yeah, we really want to hear from God's Word. The, the, the passage we're looking at this morning is from Mark's Gospel, which is, Mark's Gospel is a record, almost certainly, of the Apostle Peter, one of the eyewitnesses of Jesus, his account of what it was like to follow Jesus. And we come to this part of the story in uh, the Gospel where Jesus has been becoming more and more popular. Huge crowds have been gathering to him. He's done extraordinary miracles, and he's taught amazing things. Most recently, as we saw last week, he's just walked on water, and those who were with him began to worship him. It's truly God. They were astounded. And there are now these massive crowds. And so what's going on in our passage we're going to look at this morning is that the religious leaders from Jerusalem were not too happy about this. And they began to send down, as it were, almost like an inquisition. And they started to question his disciples and indeed question Jesus from a religious point of view. So the the question we have this morning is, is the Bible reliable? And in the passage we're about to read out, strangely to many of us, the people who are actually at war with the authority of the Bible, are the religious people. And if you are someone who's inquiring about the reliability of the Bible, if you're someone who's not sure whether the Bible is truly reliable, let that be right from the beginning an encouragement. It's actually the religious people in this story who get it wrong. So let's hear God's word. Mark chapter 7. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, that is uh, Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And then Mark explains, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, 
If a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. This is God's word. Amen. So the question we're considering this morning is, is the Bible reliable? Is the Bible reliable? That is, can you trust the Bible? Can you trust the Bible with your life? Can you trust the Bible practically? When the Bible says do something, is it something that is verifiably sensible to do what it says? Is the Bible reliable? Is the Bible something you can trust practically? Is the Bible something you can trust intellectually? That is, is the Bible historically reliable? When it says that something happened, did it actually happen? Or is it just a fairy tale? Is it just a myth? Has it just been made up by religious people? Or instead, as we here at College Church believe, is the Bible actually historically reliable? And that is the account that it tells us here in Mark's Gospel, for instance, about Jesus, is a reliable account. That when it says that Jesus said something and did something, that is what he said and that is what he did. Is the Bible reliable? Now, of course, many people today don't think it is. They've heard all sorts of things about the Bible. They've heard that scholars have concluded that it is not historically reliable and and other things. All sorts of ideas about the Bible. And what I want to do this morning is, is, is really be able to say to you, I'm going to take, I really want to say that a lot of this, what you've heard, is, as it were, fake news. It's not actually the real thing. And in this passage this morning, we have fake religious news, and that can put a lot of people off, and we need to be honest about that, where we as a religious community, not necessarily ours right here, but as Christians have sometimes failed in that regard, fake religious news, fake secular news, for there's that too, but it's fake news. For the Bible is reliable, indeed. The Bible is simply the most popular book that has ever been written. I mean, did you know that in 2016, one publisher, one publisher alone, globally, was publishing a hundred Bibles a minute? A hundred Bibles a minute. Did you know that in the United States alone, in 2018, last, last year, 160 8,000 Bibles were given away or sold every day. 168,000 in the United States. Now, that does not prove it's reliable, you would say. Well, of course, no, you're right. It doesn't prove it's reliable, but it does show that it's unique. And it does show that lots and lots and lots of people want to find out what it says. And those of us, like here at College Church, who take the Bible seriously, are in, by in, in no way part of some kind of minority report. A hundred Bibles every minute 
168,000 a, a day. And, and that is just worth, at the beginning, facing up to if you're saying to yourself, I cannot trust the Bible's reliable. A lot of people think it's pretty important. And indeed, the, the unreliability of the Bible, which I'm saying this morning is fake news, all the different misinformation there is about it, the unreliability of the Bible has so often been announced in the past, so many times. I mean, for instance, the great atheist Voltaire declared in a sort of humanistic prophecy, he declared that by 1850, the Bible would be extinct. 2016, 100 Bibles a minute being published globally by one publisher. So I, when, when the question here is, is the Bible reliable, I'm not positioning myself as somehow needing to defend the Bible. I think the Bible can defend itself, or rather God will defend his word. I don't need to defend the Bible. I'd rather like, uh, and my approach is going to be similar to this that this morning, I'd rather like the approach of Charles Spurgeon, who famously once said, defend the Bible, I'd sooner defend a lion. In other words, lions don't need defending from poor, simple, weak old me. They can do their own defending. Now, my job this morning is simply to, as it were, uncage the lion and let it do its own defending. What I want to do this morning is to remove this religious fake news and remove this secular fake news and then let us encounter the beauty of Jesus as he brings forward the word, the Bible. So religious fake news, secular fake news, and then the Bible itself. First of all, religious fake news. And of course, that is the, the burden, the passage here. There are all these religious traditions that have been put on top of the Scripture. So first of all, these uh, religious leaders come down from Jerusalem. They're criticizing the Pharisees for not washing their hands before they eat. Now, you need to get some context. Mark gives us a little bit of context there. Of course, in the Old Testament... The Bible does say that the priests should wash their hands before performing sacrifices. But what has happened was the Pharisees, and this is typical for legalism, what has happened is the Pharisees had taken that rule and they'd added to it. They'd added to it that they now needed to wash their hands before they ate any kind of food, and not just the priests, but anyone. And of course, it's not about hygiene, it's not about having physically clean hands so you don't get sick. It's about religious cleanliness. And it's really a very serious matter. We know from other literature at the time that actually there was an individual who refused to follow these stipulations was thrown out of the synagogue. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to show that Jesus and his Pharisees are not, as it were, kosher, and therefore they can be thrown out of the synagogue. They're trying to show that all this religious popular movement around Jesus is out of bounds, not what should be done by the tradition of the elders and therefore they can exclude them, they can excommunicate them, they can throw them out of the synagogue because they're not washing their hands. It's not a minor thing, it's a major thing. Now what does Jesus do? Jesus points out the real hard issue. What's really going on here is they're using this religious tradition to hide what's really happening in their heart. 
And he quotes, as we'll see, he relies upon the Bible. He quotes from the Bible, Isaiah, to make his point. You're just worship, your, your worship is in vain, he says. You're worshiping me with your lips, but your heart is not in it. That's why you're having these human religious rules, because your heart's not really worshiping me. What is more, he goes on to say in the passage, you do even more than that. Even more than that, there's this thing called Korban, which is in verses 9 to 12, described here in this passage. Korban was a sort of religious, legal technique to avoid God's command to take care, in this instance, of parents, the fifth commandment, to honor your father and mother. This is how we think it worked. You could declare a piece of property or some finances that you owned, Corban, and thereby having done that, it's a gift devoted to God, it's Corban, it's a legal, religious legal declaration. By having declared it Corban, no one else could touch it, not even a family member. It was now excluded from them being able to make any use of it. What is more, even though you declared it as Corban, a gift for God, you didn't have to give it to the temple you could still use it for yourself. It was just a religious, legal loophole. It was a kind of religious tax evasion, a sort of religious generosity evasion. Corban. And what Jesus is saying here, really it seemed did happen. We know from some literature around this time that there was a particular individual, for instance, who declared some of his money Corban, so his parents couldn't use it, felt badly about that, wanted to use it to take care of his older parents, but could not do so because he'd said Corban, a vow to God, and so what did he do? Well, then he gave it to someone else so they could then give it to his parents to take care of them that regard by another route, but that someone else decided they didn't want to do that. And so then the first individual who felt bad about having declared Corban went to the rabbis and asked to be let off his vow, but the rabbis refused. He made a vow to God. And so by this religious legal loophole, this generosity tax evasion, they were actually undermining the very fifth commandment, the Ten Commandments, the fifth of those Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother, Corban. Now note what Jesus says, verse 13. I think in some ways it is one of the most amazing things that Jesus ever said. Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. Thus, making void the word of God. Thus, or put it another way, thus nullifying the word of God. What does that mean? The same phrase is used in Galatians chapter 3 when Paul there argues about how God's covenant Abraham is not nullified or overwritten by what he says to Moses. So, what's happening here, as one commentator put it, they are actually daring to declare illegal God's word. They are thinking in their own human religious tradition that they can outrule God's word. For them, God's word is very powerful. It is, if you like, Superman. Superman. 
but they have a kryptonite tactic. Their religious tradition. And they'll declare it illegal. So why? Why? So because so then they'll have the money they need to do what it is that they want to do. Religious fake news. It puts people off actually reading the Bible because they think it's about all that junk. You say, well, that never happens anymore. Oh, yes, it does. Oh, it does. It can be old things. It can be new things. But religious leaders keep on putting in front of God's word their own view, their own opinion, their own rules. Why? In order to hide from the true power, the lion of God's word. I mean, just the last few weeks, we've, we've read about all sorts of confusion and complexities and controversies in religion in Chicagoland, across the churches in Chicagoland. Religion itself can be the greatest inoculation from actually preventing you from really hearing God's word. And we do it all the time. Well, we don't do it by washing hands, but we do have other rules, don't we? You must wear a certain kind of thing when you go to worship God. Must you? Where does it say that in the Bible? Oh, you have perfect freedom to wear what you feel is appropriate when you come to worship God. But when you turn around as these people were and insist that other people do it, then you're acting like a legalist. I've always rather enjoyed what Chuck Swindle said about legalism. He said, the trouble with legalists is that no one has ever stood up to them and told them to get lost. It's a hard thing to say, but he carried on to say, the issue with legalism is that it will drive out any person whom God is at work in your church. He'll put them off and keep them away. Other than that, he said, I don't have an opinion. It can be clothes, it can be dancing, it can be. We think by adding to God's word, we are being even more serious, even more zealous for following God. But actually what we're doing is by adding to it, we're actually undermining it. We're undermining it. Because now we're hiding from the real truth of what God is actually about in his word. Religious fake news. But then there's also secular fake news. And the interesting thing is I've been studying this this week is it works in a very similar kind of way. So you have the religious fake news, you have the physical, the external, you have the fake kind of worship, and then you have the finances. Very simply, very similarly with secular fake news these days. You have the physical, the external. I predict this. Anytime in any city when churches begin to decline, when churches are closing, I predict this. At the same time that churches are closing, you will begin to see the following happen. Gyms will open. We become obsessed by a physical bodies, by our beauty, by our physique, 
in order to hide from our internal poverty, our spiritual lack of being in good shape. It's a tactic to hide from the the lion of God's word. We go to the gym to work out, get stronger and better looking, and we don't therefore have the time to really notice the poverty, the spiritual poverty within Okay, you say, I understand that, but worship, there's no secular forms of worship, are there? Oh, yeah, there are. I went with my son to a Bulls game just the other week. I enjoy going to the Bulls game. It was all sorts of fun, even though, of course, as usual these days, they lost. We got, you know, probably the cheapest seats you can get, and uh, we were right up there, you know, in the balcony, right, right, right up high, so high, we, I think I practically got a nosebleed up there, we're so high. But it was really fun. We had a great time. I've got nothing against going to such sporting events. It was fun. I enjoyed it. We enjoyed it. It was a good thing to do. I went there with one of my children. Great. But let me ask you this. What are the modern-day cathedrals? It's not this. Every week, tens of thousands of people gather together. They know the songs. They become a part of the nation. They buy the right kits to be identified with this particular group. It's a secular kind of worship. Sports. 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 Takes away from the passion of God's people for God's word by putting instead a physical, external thing. Well, I may feel really impoverished. My soul may be impoverished, but you know, I'm getting stronger, I'm getting better at sports, and I'm supporting a team that's really pretty great. And of course, the same with Corban. Well, in the secular sense, no one says Corban, do they? No one does that. I predict this. Any city that has declining church attendance or is closing churches, at the same time, there'll be a growing fascination, obsession, and fixation with money, finances, finances, money, even at the cost of parents and children and family. Secular fake news. It's another way to try and hide from God, to hide from God's Word. So you remove the religious fake news, you remove the secular fake news, what do you have? Well, here, here you have in this story, it's really quite amazing. They, they come to Jesus and of course they, they come uh, concerned about their, their lack of, uh, the disciples' lack of cleanliness, rituals. And they're, they're concerned that the disciples are not washing their hands appropriately. They, they, and the Pharisees and the scribes are feeling very pure and clean, and yet the one before whom they most need purity and to be cleansed is standing right in front of them. And they've got all this tradition, all these rules of worship, and yet the one who they most of all need to worship 
is standing right in front of them. And they'll use human religious techniques to avoid their responsibilities before God for their parents according to God's word. They'll do this Corbin thing, even at the cost of their parents, even the cost of family members. They'll, they'll sacrifice them for their own agenda just like they will take Jesus himself to the cross and sacrifice him so they can still do exactly as they want. thus making void the word of God. It's just Superman and we can use our kryptonite to depower it of its power. We'll find a way. And yet God's word is not chained. And his word will not return to him empty but will accomplish the purpose for which he has sent it. And that one they crucified rose again. And his word is preached throughout the world. Ah, oh, you, maybe you're a skeptic. You are here because of these Explore God, this Explore God series that we're in. And you particularly want an answer to, is the Bible reliable? And all you've heard so far is, yes, it isn't religious and it isn't secular, this fake news. But you're saying, I'm a sophisticated skeptic. I understand that there are real critical problems with the Bible. And you're not answering those critical problems. Well, let me take a moment to do that. F.F. Bruce, one of the greatest scholars of the uh, of, of Bible, of the New Testament, once said this, it is a curious fact that just as historians have become ever more ready to accept the reliability of the Bible, theologians, many of them, have become less. For the Bible is historically reliable. There's so much to say about that. I cannot possibly get into it all this morning. I've written a paper about it online. Let me just give you a couple of things. One is the documentary transmission. The other is external corroboration. Documentary transmission. Look at it like this. Let's make a comparison. You've got an ancient text like Caesar's Gallic Wars. It's a well-known ancient text. Everyone basically accepts that it is historically reliable. Caesar's Gallic Wars was written somewhere between B.C. 58 and BC 50, around then. When, was the, when is the earliest, um, earliest manuscript copy that we have of when it was written? About 850 AD. So there's a gap between when it was written and our earliest manuscript copy of about 900 years. How many copies do we have of Caesar's Gallic Wars? About 10. Okay, let's compare that with the Gospels. When were the Gospels written? Well, you say there's huge argument about that. There is some discussion, but there's also pretty significant consensus as well. And most of that is because there's a manuscript called the Ryland's Fragment, which is dated conservatively to 125 AD. It's of John's Gospel. Most scholars think John's Gospel was written last of all. And therefore, the gap between the Ryland's Fragment, and when the Gospels is written, is conservatively about 35 years, maybe a little bit longer. 35 years gap, Caesar's Gallic Wars, 900 years gap. How many manuscripts do we have of the New Testament? Caesar's Gallic Wars, we have 10. How many of the New Testament? 24,000. Now, not all those manuscripts are full texts of the New Testament, of course, but we have 24,000 manuscripts. Document transmission. 
What do you say? What about external correlation? Is there any external data that shows us that what the New Testament talks about actually happened? Well, actually, there is a lot, actually. There's a lot of archaeology. Archaeologists have said the archaeological records have not countermanded everything, anything that is in the New Testament. There's a lot of archaeological evidence. There's also other external documents that speak of what happened in the New Testament. For instance, a man called Thallus, writing in AD 52, uh, World History, describes how an eclipse of the sun took place at the time that Jesus was died, therefore confirming the New Testament accounts. Or Tacitus, writing in AD 115, describes how it was under Emperor Tiberius, and while the procurator Pontius Pilate was uh, governor, that Jesus was crucified, confirming thereby the New Testament accounts. Or Josephus, the Jewish historian, writing in AD 80, describes, now some people say what he puts there was sort of added to, corrected by Christian copyists, and therefore you can't take it seriously. But we have a 10th century Arabic copy, therefore not copied by Christians, that describes the same thing. And Josephus said, basically just describing what had taken place, that Jesus' disciples say they met their master three days after being crucified and that he was alive. And accordingly, therefore, perhaps, Josephus says, he was the Messiah about whom the prophets have spoken wonders. There's all this evidence. It's fake news to say there isn't. There's huge historical evidence for the historical reliability of the Bible. You say, well, why is it then that Not everyone accepts it. Well, it's for the same reason the Pharisees found it so hard that they saw Jesus right in front of them. To accept that Caesar's Gallic Wars is historically reliable will not change your life. To accept that this is historically reliable, that will. For better, for eternity but it will change your life. So my approach this morning is simply to be following the approach of Charles Spurgeon. Defend the the Bible, I'd rather defend a line. I want to take out the religious fake news, take out the secular fake news, and then let the Bible speak for itself as we aim to do every Sunday here at Cottage Church. I wrote a book on the Bible called How the Bible Can Change Your Life. My wife said to me the subtitle of that book should really have been Read It. (laughs) It's pretty much what I'm saying. But it is important you take it seriously. The great Scottish novelist Sir Walter Scott said this about the Bible. Herein lies, he said, mystery of mysteries. How blessed are they of the human race who are granted the great grace to read and listen and hear and pray, to unleash and unlock and therefore read and follow the way. But he carried on, better never to have been born are they who refuse to read and merely sneer and scorn. Now, I'm not asking that you make up your mind entirely this morning. All I'm asking you to do is to say, let's accept it's historically reliable. Let's read it. Let's, let's read Mark's gospel that is designed for you 
to encounter Jesus as the Son of God. It's the gospel of the Son of God, Mark 1 verse 1. Mark chapter 14, the centurion falls at his feet, at Jesus' feet, he's being crucified and says, surely this is the Son of God. You follow Peter's journey, the eyewitness account, as you follow his journey, as he follows Jesus, you begin to realize who Jesus is and then you take his attitude to the Bible. See, the Pharisees come along and quote from religious tradition. They quote from religious fake news, secular fake news. Jesus goes straight to Isaiah, quotes from God's word. He goes straight to the book of the Old Testament. He quotes from Moses. Jesus' attitude to the Bible is that it is God's word. and You're following Jesus, then that will begin to be your attitude too. And yes, it will change your life. I've seen it so many times, so just close with this. One individual that Rochelle and I knew came to a little group that we were running, a bit like these Explore God groups. We called it Doubters Anonymous. And she came along each week, and she had many different questions, many different doubts. That was fine. We enjoyed talking about it all with her. We were cracking open the Bible. She had questions about the Bible. She'd come back next week with more questions. This went on for about six months or so, and at the end of it, she gave her life to Jesus. This was not because it was such a clever technique. This was not because we ran the Bible study so perfectly. It was because of God's Word. And I want that for you. And I want that increasingly for us as a church. I love how John Wesley put it, and I'll close with this. This is John Wesley. He said, I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. God himself has condescended to teach that way. He has written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me that book. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for how you have superintended, you have overseen. Uh, It's... uh, transmission to us, the text, the manuscripts. We, we praise you, Lord, that you have inspired it fully and completely. We praise you, Lord, yeah, Lord, it is historically reliable. We praise you, Lord, that as we read your word, read the gospels, we can encounter Jesus and then follow his attitude to your word. And I pray, Lord, that that attitude of Jesus would be ours as well, that we would Take your word as your word. And Lord, I pray then for all of us that when we're going through hard times, when we're facing difficulties, when we're discouraged, we can go now to the Bible with fresh and new confidence and say, I'm going to trust your promises. Trust the truth that you've declared there. And I pray for those here this morning who are still trying to discover the truth of your word. I pray, Lord, that as they explore that, Except Mark's gospel is basically historically reliable. They encounter Jesus and then follow him and his attitude to your word. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.